Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Planet Podcast. For all those who care about our beautiful but vulnerable planet Earth. And today we have a very special guest who shares that love for our planet and who's well aware of the challenges we face and works towards solutions. And she dedicates her life to raising awareness, educating youth, and actually all of us on the global water crisis and on the responsible water leadership. She's also a record-breaking ultra-marathon runner. She was, for instance, the very first to run 40 marathons across seven deserts in just seven weeks. Um, I'm deeply impressed because uh, I've never ran a marathon in my life. I'm always happy when I manage to run my 10K. Fortune magazine has named her as one of the 50 greatest world leaders. That is really impressive. And she is. Welcome, Mina Guli in the Planet Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very pleased to be here. And after an introduction like that, I feel like I've got big shoes to fill. <laughs> well, I Googled you a little bit and I'm, I'm, I'm really impressed with everything you do, both for your water work as well as for um, uh, all your running and the way that you combine uh, those, uh, those two activities. Um, so uh, I, uh, you, you, one of the ways you're raising attention is, is unique for those listening who don't know yet. Um, Mina is running 200 marathons in one year and doing that all over the world. So now you are in Arizona. Uh, did you run today? No, fortunately, today is a day off, one of very few, very rare days off. Um, but I've been running in Arizona for most of the last week. Okay, wow, that is that is amazing. My memory of Arizona is that it's extremely hot and it wasn't even summer when I was there, so that must be a challenge. I'm doing this from Ottawa, by the way, where there's a pile of snow outside, so that's for the contrast. So speaking of, of water issues on which you're so active, um, Arizona must be a very special case. I read about the Colorado River that is, that is getting less and less water and Arizona just saying it's so hot must be a special case for water i guess yeah so um arizona is obviously a largely a desert based country uh, a community or a state and so it's it is it's pretty confronting to go from so many of the places for example in europe or even around san francisco or la where i run down some streets or run through the mountains and they're green the streets are green the lawns are green. People are watering their lawns um, very controversially in places like LA and San Francisco where water is still extremely scarce, but where the community has become so used to being surrounded by greenery that they don't really understand how scarce this water is, especially if it rains or snows, which it has recently um, in both places. The difference and the, the contrast between that and places like Las Vegas or um, Phoenix in Arizona, where I was the last couple of days, is quite dramatic because in those places, the yards have been, the green yards have been replaced by desert landscapes. You run down, you don't see trees, you see cacti and you see an entirely different way of life that visually really reflects the level of water availability in the area. And I think that that for me was a pretty eye-opening, that's a very instant eye-opening moment. The other eye-opening moment is to drive outside the major cities into some of the farmland um, and to witness and to speak with the farming communities in both places because they both have water problems and water challenges, but they're very different. In um, 
in the San Joaquin Valley where we were in California, in the northern part of California, there are huge problems with groundwater availability, not because the farmers want to drain the underground water supplies, but because the Sierra Nevada water that the government regulates has been regulated so much that very little, a very small proportion of the water that comes off the Sierra Nevadas actually goes to those farmers. So they have been forced to find alternate ways to source water for the trees and plants that they've got, many of which are things like almonds and pistachios. So it's a really interesting set of challenges for them, which is vastly different to the set of challenges in places like the farming communities around Phoenix, where there is no rainfall, where they are relying on, in large part, water from the Colorado River, which, of course, we know is at historic levels. I went and saw for myself around Las Vegas um, that Lake Mead, which I saw for the first time back in 2017, and at that stage was at really low levels. What I was shocked to see the size of the bathtub rings around Lake Mead. And on this trip, I was mind blown by how bad this problem is. It is a catastrophe of proportion that you cannot reflect in print and media and even in the pictures that we took. Every time we took a picture, I'm like, how do we show just how bad this is? Because the scale the scale of this is mind-blowing. And it's not just the size of the bathtub rings, it's to look out across this landscape, which used to be filled with water and it's now dry that I can run across it. You know, I was instead of running through fertile land, I'm running across this desert landscape being blown away, away by dust storms. You know, this is not the way Lake Mead should be. It's not the way Lake Powell should be. And it's definitely not the way that the Colorado should be. And yet, it is. And that's causing problems not only from an environmental perspective, but also from a community perspective, from a farming perspective, from an economic perspective, because it is dramatically impacting the lives and communities of people all down the Colorado River. And I think this is going to continue to be a huge challenge for people here, not only in Arizona, but for the seven US states that depend on the Colorado River and the two and the two states in Mexico that also require water from the Colorado to live, to farm, to grow, to, to, for everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, to brief logistics things, I see that Gator is wants to ask a question, but uh, for those that follow the show longer, we normally talk for about a half an hour, 40 minutes, and then we let in questions. So please stay and come back later with uh, raising your hand uh, to ask a question. Another thing on logistics is I advise everyone to subscribe to Mina Guli's um, YouTube channel, uh, as well as on uh, on Twitter. Both are easy to find. It's just at Mina Guli, uh, because your very short videos are amazing. They're so well produced and so uh, informative. And you just mentioned California. And since I had watched your videos, I knew that already. But all that you say, that brings me to the question, how do we solve this? Let's stay, I mean, we talk about a worldwide problem, but let's stay briefly in the, in the area where you are. Um, the, the Colorado River is uh, fed by um, the, the, the snow and, and, and the glaciers that you uh, still have in, in what's Rocky Mountains National Park. And, and then there's the Green River a little bit more to, to the west that starts in Wyoming. Both of them are getting less and less water. And... Obviously, this problem is not going away by itself. So one thing you can do is adapt and use less water more efficiently or, or reuse it or those kind of things. But the, the, the main cause of the problem, the, the, uh, the, the climate, climate change, it makes it get less water. 
how do how do we solve that? that all these people are living there there must be tens of millions of people depending on this water so what can we do you're advocating sorry. so i want to hear your solutions okay so firstly let's talk about the scale of the problem because it's not tens of millions it's hundreds of millions and it's hundreds of millions of people both directly and indirectly because people rely on the water out of colorado to drink but also to fuel their farms to produce the food and fiber that so much of the united states depends on so let's just talk about the scale because it's not a small problem this is a major problem and let's also frame it not just as an environmental catastrophe it's also an economic and a social catastrophe because without water we not only can't produce the food and fiber we need but we also strangle the lives of the communities along the river um i cannot tell you how many communities i've been to which have been so starved of water that they can no longer survive and for sale signs literally litter the streets people cannot sell their property because without water what's the point of having a property or having anything a, a business anything so you watch these communities literally collapse and the value of the property and the value of those communities collapse alongside them so let's i think it's really important that we look at this not as just a small problem and definitely not as just in inverted commas an environmental challenge because it's way more than that putting that into context just a brief um just a, a, another brief point before we talk about the solutions because it's really important that we understand what the challenge is before we talk about what the solutions are so the challenge is not just a climate change challenge that is compounding a much deeper problem and the deeper problem is when the colorado the colorado is uh, shared between seven states in the united states and two states in mexico so it's a lot of people depending on this we already talked about the size of the problem the challenge of all of that is that there is a huge number of people depending on and using the colorado like the colorado like in many other places have a dramatic increase in the demand for that water so estimates across the world are that our demand for water is increasing at twice the rate of the population and the reason is because water goes into everything we use by and consume every day so it's not just a population increasing problem using more water in their bathtubs and their showers and their toilets and taps it's also that our demand for more stuff is increasing so the more we want stuff the more water we need to produce that stuff just as to give things perspective the water that went into just what you're wearing today just one outfit took more water to make than all the water you've drunk before you're 40 years old one outfit and then you think about that in the context of the number of outfits the amount of food you're eating because water goes into food and it goes into power it goes into literally everything so as our demand for more of that stuff goes up so too does our demand for water the challenge for the colorado is that the way in which they allocated the water between the seven us states and the two states in mexico happened at a period of time when the water levels in the colorado were relatively high and strong this is it's not just a colorado problem by the way this exists in places like the murray darling in australia where we also have very very similar very very significant controversy about how to manage a very constrained river for exactly the same reasons as it, as the colorado in the colorado we have this natural um conflict between the different states because the the way in which the allocations were made we have now over allocated the water out of the river and in a situation like we have where we have dramatic constraints in the amount of water flowing down into the river we have more water being lost through runoff and you know all kinds of 
reductions in the supply of water available at the same time as you've got an increase in the demand, you have an imbalance in the system. Hence, you can see the visible signs in places like Lake Mead and Lake Powell. Lake Powell I literally ran across the bottom of the dam in Lake Mead and we went out on boats and went out of, we took a kayak out at the end of my run one day and we just literally went out to see the size of the bathtub ring. So I've got to tell you when you're on the water looking up at these massive walls high, sky high above you, white, where the bathtub rings are, it is terrifying. So, you know, you can see these visible signs. You can see it in the farms. Farms are being asked to fallow their crops where they were previously able to grow. Um, farmers are being told you're probably going to have to pull out some of the trees that you've planted. There's vast, like the visible signs of the constraints on the Colorado are there. So there's no doubt that there's a challenge. The reason I'm telling you all of that is because I think if we brand the Colorado challenge as a climate change issue, we miss the point. Because the climate change issue is something that's very hard for us to change, adapt, or to, to, to significantly impact. So I think what we need to do is understand that the climate change issue is constraining a system that we had poorly allocated based on an assessment of where we had forecast the river levels to be, and they're just not like that anymore. So if we model out what's going to happen to the river system, we need to understand that our levels of water available are vastly different to what we expected them to be years ago when the allocations are made. And what does that mean? That means we need to come together to figure out solutions on how we can change our demand for the limited water there is available, number one. And number two, we need to understand the risk of very, very significant ongoing stress on the system. So we cannot sit here hoping that things will change. When we had, um, when we're in the midst, or just a well, couple of months in, which we thought was the midst, but a couple of months into COVID, I called my coach and I was, I got stuck in Australia. I wasn't supposed to be there. I was in living in Hong Kong. The borders got shut. I was stuck in. And I called my coach and I said, coach, what do we do? It's now June. The borders have been shut. What do I do? Do I get a house? Do I live here temporarily? And he said to me, my athletes that are coping the best are the ones that have recognized that this is where we are right now and are not hoping for a better situation to come about tomorrow. And I think the same thing applies for some of the ways in which we're managing these rivers. There are some who are sitting there hoping for a rainfall, hoping for a weather event, hoping that the snow we've seen falling unexpectedly um, across the United States, that snowpack is going to solve our problem. It will not solve the problem because we have a 23-year drought in this part of the country where the snowpack of one year is not going to fix this, but it is going to lull us if we're not careful into a false sense of security. So what do we need to do to fix this? We need to come together, not only across state boundaries, but we need to come together across industry, business, communities. We need to come together across NGOs and conservationists because only when we figure out solutions that meet all of our requirements do we actually solve this problem. We cannot point the finger at farmers, which is you know what traditionally tends to happen, and say you need to cut the water that you're using because if we do that, we lose the food and the fibre that not only we depend on to live, but our economies depend on to, start to, to thrive and to survive. So I think that this is a big lesson for all of us in coming together, understanding all of our concerns and figuring out collective action solutions to some of these big challenges. Again, not just the Colorado, but places like the Murray-Darling. Now, yeah. what does that actually look like on the ground? 
the reality is it's going to look like there's going to be pain. Like let's not, as one of, we spoke to uh, an amazing woman from the, from the Nevada um, water authority. And she said to, she said to us, Mina, you have to remember a quote from the princess bride. This will be painful. Anyone who tells you otherwise is lying. And it's true. This is going to require us to do some hard things, but the good news is we can do hard things. I know because I'm in the middle of doing one incredibly hard, big challenge that I thought I couldn't do, but we're capable of doing so much more than we realize. Doing things more efficiently, farming better, using regenerative agriculture, sharing our stories. We're better. We can do things better in our homes, turning off the tap when we brush our teeth, using more water-friendly gardens, figuring out how better to use our public spaces so that they don't need as much water to survive figuring out in places like Las Vegas where the casinos recycle their water and that that that's not recycled gets reused through the wash system that's naturally cleaning the water to get repumped back into into Lake Mead. You know, there are so many different ways that we can do better. We just need to be prepared to do that. And that's not going to be easy because it's going to require change. Change is never easy, but it's totally doable. It's, but it's only doable when we, A, recognise we have a problem, which most of us are in denial about. B, we understand what the problem is, which we just talked about, way beyond climate change. It's also about demand. And C, we understand the scale and the enormity of this challenge that we're facing and that it's incredibly urgent that we actually take these steps because otherwise what's going to happen is we'll recognise that it's hard and we will continue to walk away in the way that we have been today, including even most recently in January where talks about the Colorado River broke down. So that's yeah. a very long-winded um, example, but I think it's really important because it's not the only river I've run down. I ran down uh, a, a river called the Amu Darya in Central Asia, which is ends literally to watch the death of a river is heartbreaking. And I did that at the Amu Darya because it literally ends this amazing mighty river that comes from one of the highest parts of the of the world where they're fed by incredible glaciers it's literally rushing river of water huge at the top nothing at the end um and you know again also not the only one the murray darling i mean i've lost track of the number of rivers even in europe the danube and the rhine and the loire all under threat lowest levels they've been in 500 500 years so dry I could walk, run underneath them and a shocking level of understanding amongst Europeans about how bad the situation is and an expectation that's going to be fine next summer, but it's not. And I think that that's a major lesson. The lesson of the Colorado is a lesson we should all learn. Yeah, in Europe, we see it on the River Rhine where in the in the last summer when it was so dry, it was just the, the shipping was not only the small ships, the small barges were able to, to still... Uh, moving the water, and that's the the artery of Europe. I mean, all goods are transported over over that river, and uh, that has a huge uh, impact. You you mentioned um, uh, the uh, the rivers in Central Asia. You've been at um, uh, at the um, uh, at the Aral Sea, or the former, nearly former Aral Sea. I I, I I should say that is probably one of the worst examples that you've seen. How not to do it which has nothing to do with climate change, which was all about governance and, and, and using too much water for irrigation, I guess. Yeah, I think it's a variety of different, again, you know, it's hard to put your finger on and say it's one thing because the problem with yeah. water and climate change is that climate change is water change. 
and climate risk is water risk. And we need to understand that one of the first places we'll get bitten by climate change is in water. So I think it's very hard with any of these things to say it's purely about a management issue. Having said that, yeah, running through the RLC was a huge um, eye-opening lesson in the way in which things need to be done differently and better. Um, number one. Number two, a big lesson in listening to scientists and people on the ground. Because for 30 years, people said, this RLC will dry up. It will dry up in our lifetime. 30 years later, there is no RLC. There are literally just the carcasses of boats stranded in what are now the desert sands. And to run past those massive hulking, we're not talking little fishing boats, we're talking massive, massive fishing boats. Um, and to run past those and to be able to meet the fishermen that actually sailed those out to sea, to talk to the women and, and families who depended on that, who would wait at the port for those fishermen to come back or who would put their goods and products onto those boats to sail them across the border to sell on the Silk Road. You know, these. This is just a really salutary, extremely real moment for us to say this is where so many of these places are heading if we don't do something about it. So whether it's the RLC, the Salt Lake, Lake Omea, you know, there are multiple examples of where we have pulled water out of a river system to irrigate lands and we've forgotten that we actually need to preserve the river system and the ecology as well. And this is, I think, a big challenge where, you know, if you, when you run down, when I ran down the Amidari, people say to me, how come there's water at one end and there's a dead RLC at the other end? What happens to the river? And as you run down, you see it, just all the canals being pulled off, draining this artery, as you call it, for the Rhine. But the same thing exists in the RLC and the Amidari, which is that there are arteries all the way down the river system that people depend on, again, to grow the food and fiber that we need. So am I suggesting that we should stop growing things like cotton and rice because, you know, they use a lot of water or almonds or pistachios? No, definitely not. But what we do need to do is grow them better and smarter. We need to grow them more efficiently and we need to recognise that, that we can't continue to treat water as if it's nothing because it's everything. Yeah, yeah, that's a wonderful quote. If I write an article about this, this might be the heading. And uh, <laughs> water is not nothing, water is everything. Yeah, that's 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 so true. Uh, today's International Women's Day. You already said that uh, water and climate are intricately related, but water is related to about everything. It's from the, the SDG, the Sustainable Development Goals of the, of the UN agenda for um, uh, that we agreed upon in 2015 of everything that we need to do by 2030 to make this much more a better world for 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 everyone. Uh, it is number six of those seventeen sustainable development goals. But actually, I remember in those days when we were negotiating about this, that there was some talk: Do we actually need one for water? Because water already comes back in all the other ones. It's already relevant for health, and it's relevant for climate. It's relevant for food, and you could go on. And uh, the counter argument was: Well, just because it's so important, it needs to be a separate one. So finally, it it did become. Uh, a separate one, um, but it's also very relevant um, for for women because women are often much more affected for what. Have you have you seen examples of it? I know you have because I just sent out a tweet that you sent out earlier today. I think can you say a few things about that? 
Yeah, so along this journey, it's become very clear to me that at the front line of a lot of this water of these water challenges are women and girls. I have lost count of the number of women and girls who I met who were spending literally hours each day going to fetch water. The kids that the girls particularly who went to fetch water rather than going to school, um, the girls who had to stay home waiting for water to be delivered, uh, the women who risked their lives every single day, literally risked their lives going to fetch water. The women who had to leave their children and their babies um, being tended to by the younger children just so they could go and fetch water and the damage and injuries that ensued to those kids who were forced to stay back um, and look after babies that they had no qualification to look after and no experience. You know, we're talking about three or four-year-old kids who are there looking after a, looking after a baby while the mum goes and fetches water just from pure necessity because the mum can't carry the two kids the water and walk for literally an hour or two each way. So I have witnessed this with my own eyes. I've also met female farmers um, who are struggling to survive on farms that are bereft of water. I have met innovators, female innovators and scientists and business leaders and government leaders who are working incredibly hard to recognise that we have a challenge, the size of the challenge, the urgency of the challenge and actually deliver the change that we need. And some of them are working on the innovative seeds that can help to produce more product with less water, um, seeds that are more water resilient, more climate resilient, or pesticides that now work in a way where you don't actually need to spray with water or you don't need to wash off, wash the pesticide off the leaves. There are women working on regenerative farming. There are women working, you know, in so many different ways, women are at the forefront of this challenge. What I think we need to also recognise on a day like today is that we need to do vastly more to lift up those women and to put those women and hear their voices in the halls of power and in the boardrooms. Because too often, whilst those women are at the front line, they're in the back room when it comes to those places and those conversations where their voices need to be heard. I mean, one of the Indigenous leaders I met in Australia said to me, Mina, decisions would be better if leaders could understand that things are different on the land. That's something said by an Indigenous leader, but echoed by so many people that I have met along the way, where, you know, one of the, one of the Bedouins said to me in, in, when we were in Jordan, standing, sitting on the top of a mountain, he said to me, Mina, these people talk about it, but we live it. This is a real crisis that we need to share with the, with the global community. And I think one of our big challenges, honestly, in the water and environmental space is that people don't understand that we even have a problem. Colby, the woman from the Southern Nevada Water Authority that I met that we spoke about earlier, said to me one of our greatest challenges is that is awareness, is getting people even here in Las Vegas to understand that we have a water problem and we need to do something about it. And she's absolutely right. You know, I think about it as water blindness. We are blind to this water problem. We are blind to the fact that water really truly is everything. And we're blind definitely to the impact that we need to have each one of us individually on actually solving this problem. And I think to get to a place where we can find solutions, we need women around the world to be put in those places where they can talk about their experiences, they can collaborate with one another and actually work together to, to help to drive solutions. Yeah, yeah, actually, yeah, that's that's also true. Soon, uh, talking about talking about talking about water, uh, 
you are soon going to do your 200th, if, if that's English, uh, run, uh, your marathon, uh, ending on the steps of the United Nations in New York on the 22nd of March. Coincidentally, well, not completely coincidentally, I'll be there too, by the way, just like many, many other people, because we have a very important conference. Can you say something about it? Yes, so on the 22nd, from the 22nd to the 24th of March is the first United Nations conference on water in almost 50 years. This conference is incredibly important because it provides us with a watershed moment to come together across national boundaries, to reach across traditional silos, to put aside our vested interests and actually come together to figure out how we can together solve this global crisis. It's an opportunity for us to find three days in New York City to focus on driving commitments, real and meaningful commitments from companies, governments and individuals. Think about governments. Governments have the capacity to set the agenda and to create direction and also to create policy that enables and supports water-saving activities. Companies. Companies represent almost 90% of global freshwater use, almost directly or indirectly. And finally, individuals, every single one of us has a role to play in this, in saving and solving the global water problem, whether it is turning off our taps when we brush our teeth or whether it's the purchasing decisions we make in our household or whether it's recycling or reusing or you know, reconsuming some of the food that we, we don't eat or the clothes that we've been wearing. You know, one of our big calls to action to everybody is no matter what you run in your life, your household, your company or your daily decisions, we're asking everybody everywhere to run it blue and to put water front of mind. Yeah, yeah, that's excellent. You gave an example in one of your videos. I think there were all kinds of arrows pointed at you that your cup of coffee was actually worth, I think, 190 liters of water and the jeans you were wearing was seven and a half thousand liters of water. Um, so there's ba basically consuming less, not just food, but consuming less of everything that you do. That already helps a lot, I guess. It's actually consuming differently. So I don't think it's just about consuming less. It's about figuring out better ways to live the same life that we live and we want to live. So, you know, a cotton T-shirt is the same amount of water as taking a shower for two hours, roughly, just to give people a bit of perspective. Because I think when we look at these big numbers, we're just like, oh, that's just another big number. So one cotton T-shirt, shower for two hours. A hamburger, same, around about a two-hour shower. So when you think about that, the question is not, oh, I'm not going to have my hamburger. It's maybe I can have a plant-based burger or maybe I can buy a recycled cotton T-shirt. Nowadays, there are lots of sustainable options in the clothing and textile business which use water much more sustainably. And I think it's, it really behooves all of us to understand we don't just have a vote at the ballot box. We have a vote every time we go to the till and pay for a product to choose what we want to buy and what we want to put on our bodies and what we want to put in our bodies. And I think it's really important to remember that we are not powerless here. We have a huge amount of power, not only, as I said, in, in voting, but also in making decisions when we want to, to decide what we want to buy. Yeah, and often a lot of these decisions are not not only better just for water, but for other ones too. So for instance, the example you give of, of uh, taking a Beyond Meat burger or whatever they're called nowadays, um, yeah, it's it's better for you because you eat less red meat, but it's also less use of water. It's less abuse of animals, and um, it it is uh, actually better for your health. So there's yeah. there's 
often it it gives a lot of extra advantages. And I agree very much with you of, of of not saying you just do less because that is marketing wise probably the worst message that we can give to the people that we need to convince. It is it is it is about doing things differently, and there's a lot of added values. I yeah, I also think it's not the right message because you know doing consuming more of the good stuff is not a bad thing. It's just doing things poorly is a problem. Waste is a problem. Just think about food waste. You know, if you write, there are all, all kinds of statistics about food waste, but just if you write a shopping list before you go shopping as opposed to walking down the aisle, you dramatically not only reduce the amount of food that you waste, but you also save money. Because let's face it, wasting food is also food that you purchased that you didn't consume. So there are lots and lots of advantages in being smarter about how we live our lives making smarter choices, smarter decisions. And, you know, even in a food business, I say to people, eat, do three things. Think, eat, save. Think about what you're eating and what you're putting on your plate. Eat what's on your plate and save the leftovers for tomorrow. You know, make a shopping list. There are so many simple things we can do to adjust our daily lives. Think about just having having a garden. Water in the mornings, water at night, but don't water in the middle of the day. You know, don't just spray a sprinkler onto the pavement. There are just really, really simple things that we can all do by doing things differently will make an impact. Yeah, yeah, surely. And uh, talking about food, uh, the, the numbers of food being thrown away are, are astonishing. It's it's in the Western world that like one third is being thrown away. The same in the, in the less developed countries, but there it is more food that's rotting in the harbor because the logistics are not working and the people, once they get it in their homes, are eating all of it. But one third is amazing. Is that the number you, you have in mind too? I see some, some nodding. Yeah. Yes, yes. But I, yes, and also I think, but I think there's different, different problems of, of food waste in different places. I think in developed economies, it's, you know, it's a lot of poor choices. It's a lot of people just not really being aware or not think eat safe. Um, in a lot of the developing economies of people that I've met, the challenge is that food is wasted because of inappropriate and poor management practices and poor storage. Um, a lot of the grain harvest that by necessity has to be harvested at one point in the year and then kept for a duration ends up being contaminated by um, by fungus or by rodents or you know, a variety of different reasons. And unfortunately, the people are often forced to eat it just because they're hungry and they have no other option. Um, but that's because the community hasn't doesn't know or have access to sealed containers. And so these, there are a variety of different things. Again, coming back to this is not a problem that's unsolvable. This is not, these are not challenges which for which we don't have solutions. These are challenges for which we do have solutions. We just don't implement them. And we don't implement them for two reasons. The first is because we don't understand the nature or extent of the water crisis. And the second is we don't understand the urgency. And I think if we can start to get more people to understand that this crisis is urgent, that it is a major problem, that they're connected to it, and that there are some easy solutions to implement. The sooner we can have that transition from, I don't know, there's a problem to, wow, I'm going to do this to solve it. The sooner and faster we can do that, the better off we'll all be. And that's the value of this UN conference, to try to accelerate that transition from, I didn't even know we had a water problem, to now I think I can do something, anything to help to solve it. Because like running a marathon, I don't just get up to run a marathon, I run up I get up to run one step at a time. And I want it's really important that we understand small steps make big change happen, whether it is a marathon or whether it's solving this global water crisis. None of us 
lack the power to do change. All of us have the capacity to really make a difference. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So, talking about marathons, I thought we would speak a lot about running, but there's so much on water to talk about. Water is maybe, I can't say that one thing's more important than the other. You need to run too. But um, talking about running, you started alone running with this. It's just just amazing. I started, you, 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 one of the, the earlier things you did was run uh, 100 marathons in, in 100 days. But then at a certain moment, uh, things changed you got to the real physical limits even even for you there seem to be limits of how much you can do and then the movement changed from you being the only example to a lot of people joining you can, can you say a little bit about this day 62 change that that happened in your in your campaigning yeah so um the last campaign i set out to do was i set out to run 100 marathons in 100 days um I wanted to show what it meant to be 100% committed to anything, but particularly to water. And so everything was great. Um, I was running through a variety of different places. It was pretty challenging. I knew that I had a problem probably late 20s, early 30s in my marathons. Um, but we all thought it was just a niggle. I kept on running, um, gradually went from running to walking, walking to hobbling, hobbling to relying on my two walking poles to get by. And eventually by the time I got to marathon number 62, I was so broken that I could no longer walk. Um, I literally couldn't walk. Anyone who wants to see what that looks like, it's quite horrific. I've banned my mum from watching it. Um, yeah, when I look back, I think, how did I do that to myself? I, I did. And it turned out on that day 63 when instead of going for a run I went to the hospital that I had a 15 centimeter fracture in my femur which is the main bone uh, weight-bearing bone that runs between your knee and your hip and at the time I thought my world had fallen apart um, I was incredibly devastated devastated is not even an appropriate word because I was gutted Um, I was in tears. I thought, what is the point? I have let down all the people that I've met who asked me to tell their stories. I have let down all the people whose stories I promised I would tell in the remaining 27 marathons that I have not, 37, that I hadn't told. Um, and I felt like I'd let down my team, everybody who'd been working alongside me to, to tell this, to make the change that we all knew needed to happen because of what we'd seen during those previous 62 marathons. And as I was sitting in my wheelchair uh, in the hospital, um, a couple of incredible things happened. The first one is my team, who have no water experience, but who were just there to support me, came in and said, Mina, this water situation is about far more than you. It's about all of us. So today we will take your miles for you. And that day I watched from my wheelchair as they went out and ran a marathon. The next day they sent out on social media and they were joined by people across Cape Town. That was day 64. Day 65, people in other countries started to step up and say, this is not just a South Africa problem. This is our problem too. And this is why. And they stepped up to share their stories and do the miles. So by the time we finished that run, we hadn't just run 100 marathons in 100 days. 
we had run thousands and thousands of kilometers across the planet and in dozens and dozens of countries and territories. And since then, the movement has continued to grow. So we now have people in over 197 countries and territories who are stepping up to run and walk for water and who are sharing their stories and who are actively engaged in helping and mobilizing us to raise the voices of people across the world and show that water is not someone else's problem. Water is our problem too. And we need to see the solutions and we need to be part of those solutions and part of the conversation. And I think for me, watching this movement go from one to many has been one of the most inspiring moments of my life, not only because of what I've seen, but because of the hope it gives me for a better future for the next generation. Yeah, it, it reminds me very much of these, these what is it, Margaret Mead uh, saying of, of never doubt that a very small group of people can make a change that um, uh, that, that can be massive worldwide. It's a bit Greta Thunberg, your story. I used to live very nearby where mm -hmm. she started just, you know, one person starting something and it, it, it sparks a massive movement. Before I want to go to the, the next run that's coming up, uh, I got one question on that but uh for uh those that are listening in uh that have questions um uh, if not i have thousands more um join in i got one last question i see gator coming up uh you're next um there will be a run like that between the 16th and the 22 22nd so just before uh, this conference in um, uh, the the un 2023 water conference just before that you have a water run as well. Can people join that are listening now and a lot of people will listen later? Yes. So let's post the details on um, around this site so that people can have the, the contact details of where to go and how to and how to join. If people want to join, I also suggest you follow my um, my social media. So um, as on Twitter, it's at Mina Gooley. Um, on Instagram, it's at Mina Gooley. And we have a Facebook page, which is Mina Gooley Water, M-I-N-A-G-U-L-I. So that is really easy to find. I can advise all of you to uh, to follow her. Well, I, I follow you on Twitter and on on on, on YouTube, and uh, I, I really love those short YouTube videos. Those are so good. Um, she needs more followers, so all of you, please uh, promise me right now to uh, to follow her. Um, except for those that are asking questions now, um, Gator, uh, welcome for uh, joining here and for waiting so long. I saw that you raised your hand all the way in the beginning. Hi, thanks for the uh, the opportunity to ask um, some questions. I um, would start with just asking, how does um, the bottled water industry factor into anything that's being discussed here today, please? Did you hear it? You know, the, the water bottled industry, how, how do they factor into this whole story? Are they on the good side or the bad side or do they have to change their act? And should we still buy bottled water? Yeah, this is a really interesting question, right? In fact, the other day, I confess I bought a bottle of water um, because we were in a place where we had no other opportunity to access water, clean drinking water. And this is reality where there are places in the world where buying a bottle of water is the only option. And if it comes to buying a bottle of water or buying a bottle of um, sugar, <laughs> We're probably not supposed to name brands here. So, um, I, but buying a bottle of you know sugar, sugar or caffeinated drinks, 
then the least the one with the least water footprint is a bottle of pure water. But you're right, this has a water footprint itself, not only in extraction of water, um, in some places from aquifers that are not properly managed or maintained. Um, and also it uses water in the extraction of water for the pr production of plastic. Much of that plastic is not recycled or reused and stays in landfill for longer than we live. So I think that like most industries, we need to figure out better ways to be able to provide the same thing we need, which is access to water, but just do it in a better way. And whether that means in places where, you know, places like we are right now, which um, we can drink the water, places like my hometown in Melbourne, Australia, where we can drink the water, um, those are opportunities for us to say, maybe we don't need to access or rely upon bottled water. The one of the things that breaks my heart is to see in places where you can drink the water out of the tap, people still purchasing bottled water, not just big bottles of water, like tiny bottles of water. Um, and the amount of plastic and the amount of waste that happens around that is just heartbreaking. So I think um, I don't want to point the finger and say the entire water crisis is based around the bottled water industry because I think that that's a falsehood and I think it's dangerous. But I do think that they, like everybody else, need to do things vastly better. It's very, very interesting because um, one of the places I ran when I was in Europe was in Paris and we talked to the guys that are running the Paris Olympics. So next round of Olympic Games, for those that don't know, is going to be in Paris. And one of the conversations there was that there is a huge focus on making it the most sustainable games and what then happens to the bottled beverage industry and how do they adapt and what can they do to become more sustainable. And I think it's conversations like that that need to happen. Again, coming back to the not the don't consume, but how do we do things differently so that we can continue to have the lives that we need? Yeah. Thanks. Um, something I'd throw into this is that I would ask people, based around your observation that 90% uh, of, 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 of water consumption is corporate, right? if you apply the 80-20 the Pareto rule, essentially the low-hanging fruit is the change in corporate behaviour before you before it's the, the remaining 10% of consumer behavior in the developed world. And in, in this context, the bottled water industry is, as you are alluding to, it makes zero sense. If you are in a developed country or sufficiently developing country, the strategic objective should be to ensure that the water distribution network is complete and of permanently at a minimum safe drinking standard, which would eradicate totally the need for bottled water across that entire nation. In Britain, it is a legal requirement that if somebody walks into a retail outlet or a, or a venue of any kind, essentially, and requests a drink of water from their tap, it's legally required that that's provided at no charge. Now, all, all a person in Britain needs to do is is don't know that they don't even technically need a cup because they could drink from the tap if they had to and so if all you or if all a person does is literally carry their own container there is no requirement in britain to drink bottled water and when you look at the marketing standard for bottled water in britain and britain at least has some standards and europe has some standards i don't think the us has much in the way of standards all you need to do is label a, bo a bottle of water as bottled water and it can be literally water that a company took from the tap and put in a bottle and then sold to you and the industry rates of profit are between 50 and 200 percent on on water right now 
My it's, argument is that you should be making, everyone should be making it a strategic a global priority to eradicate the bottled water industry wherever possible. And if they don't do that, no actor in this sphere is serious. And also the, the thing about the eradication of this, of this industry is we that you're more. not taking out small businesses. You are only affecting the six multinational global food corporations and so we should have no sympathy. Okay, thanks, Gator. We're going to Mina now to react on this, and then we go to Sharon, because I have to think about others too. Thanks so much for your question. Okay, Gator, I totally I totally hear you. Um, I do want to say something just about um, this. So, the, so what we're talking about is how do we solve the global water crisis? And yes, 90% of global freshwater use, directly or indirectly, is, is connected to companies. But I think we also need to understand that of all the water used on the planet, 70% goes into agriculture, 20% into manufacturing, and 10% into global domestic consumption. That's the average. So if we're talking about low-hanging fruit, the actual low-hanging fruit is primarily around agriculture, food and fibre. And if we want to figure out how we adjust the way in which we are looking at the global water crisis, I think we need to look at, as you rightly pointed out, at some of this low-hanging fruit. And the biggest, greatest low-hanging fruit is in ag. Like how do we do things better? Again, not only just by pointing the finger at some of the big agriculture companies who are consolidating, but also at some of the smallholder farmers. And to be really honest with you, having been out into the fields and met hundreds of these farmers literally, the things that they're calling for are access to the technology, access to the knowledge and access to the capital that's required to invest in that technology and invest in the change in which they of their field. So just using an example um, to move from traditional cotton farming into organic cotton farming or um, BCI, Better Cotton Initiative farming, there is a transition period, there is transition of technology, transition of know-how, and the farmers are just you know, begging for help and support to make that happen. So I think that we need to figure out when we look at the water crisis, just what is involved in not just tinkering around the edges. You know, my philosophy with everything is go, go big or go home. It's not just about tinkering around the edges. It's not just about the small, the small adjustments that we need to make. I think that they're great. But we need also to look at the big bricks that we need to move around in order to fully solve this problem. Um, so I definitely agree with you that we need to look at the big picture. I definitely agree we need to look at where the low-hanging fruit is. But I think we also need to look vastly bigger than, than the bottled water industry. I also just, as a, as a side note, one of the requirements and one of the big pushes um, around the, the water and sanitation uh, movement is to get commitments to water and sanitation for all. And one of, the, one of the big pushes at a global and particularly government and policy level is figuring out how to incentivise and how to create systems where people around the world do get full access, not only to clean water, but to the sanitation services that they need. You know, talking to the guys in India, there is a huge push in that country to provide water and sanitation to all. When you run through some of the rural areas now, many of the rural areas have access to toilets and taps. Um, probably not water that my gut is going to be able to drink, but definitely water that the local communities can now access for the first time. So I think, um, you know, there is, 
obviously I'm also looking at the time, so I want to make sure we have time for everybody's questions. But um, I definitely think that this is a big challenge, both on the sanitation and clean water front, but also on the where, where do we put our attention to try to move the dialogue and try to move to solutions for the water crisis. Okay, thank you so much. I see Sharon, who's actually likely not far away from where you are. Hi, Sharon. Hi, Alex. It's good to have you back. Um, hi, Mina. It's an honor to talk to you. I'm speaking to you from Arizona, my home state. Um, and I grew up on a cotton farm in the Sonoran Desert. And my family um, <clears throat> and my grandparents um, were cotton farmers. So thank you so much for making this, um, giving us a little history and uh, uh, the um, you know, chronology of what's going on with the Colorado River. I was going to ask you this convoluted question about the Colorado River because I know you're you're an expert, but I'm just going to say thank you so much because this is personal. You know, we we tried to be good stewards of the water on on our cotton farms and we, um, you know, as kids, we knew um, that this irrigation water, we only had so much of it and, you know, to water to water our crops. So thank you. And I've seen it devastate, you know, the, the communities um, around here because, as I said, this is my home state. So I just wanted to say thank you because um, when you make it personal, I think it becomes, um, you know, something that you can stand behind and get behind and, you um, you know, start a conversation with our youth. I direct a youth nonprofit, so we try to do that. But I'm going to, I really want to ask you one last question, if I could. Um, I went to your website, and I checked out your blog a little bit, and I'm absolutely amazed um, at your running ability. I, I, I just am older, and I'm trying to, you know, get, get healthy again and, and get in shape. But, Mina, I read something um or I saw your pictures, and it seems like you're always smiling when you're running. <laughs> and I read um, on the runner's uh, website that um, runners who smile <clears throat> more when they're running mar marathons use less oxygen and run more economically and report a lower perceived rate of exertion than those who frown. Do you think that is true and why? Oh my goodness, it's really interesting that you asked this question just now because yesterday when I was out running, I was feeling pretty down. Actually, I had a lot of gastric problems. My I was had I've got either got a bug or my body is rebelling at running 190 marathons or probably both. Um and so I was feeling terribly awful and ordinary uh, just awful. And Yes, as I ran down some of the paths, I saw a number of people running towards me, walking their dogs. It was really early in the morning, so you know I had my head torch on. And every single time I said to them, good morning, and I gave them a big smile. It would have been so easy for me to stay in my own world. But every single time I smiled and I said hello, some of them responded, some didn't. It didn't matter what they said. What mattered was my response to that moment, which was to be filled with positivity and confidence that the day was going to be okay. And so it's really interesting that you ask this question now because <laughs> I don't know the science about how much, you know, my RPE, my rate of perceived exertion, I don't know the science about how my breathing or my oxygen consumption, but I do know that my experience is that 
when we look at things in a more positive environment in a more positive way when we tell ourselves a more positive story our attitude changes it's the same thing i'm not a runner i don't like to run and this year has been incredibly challenging for me because every day i've had to change that dialogue from i have to run i have to run tomorrow i have to do this to i get to do it I get to have this opportunity to be in these moments to go out and tell these stories and meet these amazing people. I get to say good morning to people. I get to put my headlight on. I get to, you know, experience every single day the sun coming up and the sun going down and to be in those moments in nature. And I think that when we adjust our mindset, we also adjust to a large extent our physical response to that because all of a sudden we're in a better better mindset. And I think that doesn't just go for running, it also goes for life. Let's be honest. You know, if we don't lead a happy, if we can lead a happy life, then we will be able to achieve a whole lot more because we'll look at things positively and we'll see the opportunity, not just the challenges, whether it's running, solving global water problems, or just living our daily lives. And I think it's really important to remember. I Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much. And keep smiling because um, it, it, that. It, that really caught my attention, Mina. And, um, you know, your smile means a lot. So thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. There's not always smiling, just so you know. There's also been fairer dose of tears and, um, yeah, some, some pretty big challenges along the way. <laughs> it's actually, I think, one of the conclusions of why people live longer in the blue zones, because they are so happy. Um, briefly, we have two more callers, and there I stop. And for both callers, please keep it short because I don't want to take more than one hour of Mina's time and we are about one hour. So, hi, Joshua. Well, I actually didn't think I was next. But uh, anyway, uh, in regards to ag being 70% of the problem in regards to how we're using water, what is your perspective on more regenerative agricultural practices that don't involve big ag and or companies like Monsanto and what their impact is on the water supplies around the world in putting these implements on crops. And then in regards to crops that may be alternatives for food, fuel, fiber, and or medicine, and also take a lot less water and can replace a lot of construction products in the fiber side of things like hemp. Do you have any opinions or knowledge in that area? Um, if we're okay. Tackle really big problems. Yeah, you probably knew I was going to bring this up, but I do want some expert opinions on it. And also then how sanctions may work to defer to large multinational corporations or technocrats in these areas as opposed to people that really want to protect the land, especially indigenous cultures around the world. Okay. Thanks so much, Joshua. Awesome. Thanks. Yeah. Together. Um, and um, I'll, um, I'll, then I'll also have to ask Mina to be short. Uh, thanks so much, Mina. I'm going to try and be short. I'm not very good at this because I get so passionate about this and so much to say and so much to share. Um, okay, so let's talk about regenerative cotton and regenerative farming generally. So um, I think it's important that we recognize that regenerative farming is not just the auspices of the small to medium-sized farmers. It's also being used at scale um on farms across the world uh, one of the places i ran early on in my campaign was in northern new south wales in australia home country and i met with cotton farmers there who are using regenerative 
cotton growing, regenerative, regenerative agriculture right across their field. They tested it at small scale. They did a bunch of pilots and now they've rolled it out. They're not the only ones. I met in the middle of fields in, in Turkey. I met some guys who, again, are at scale cotton farmers and were starting the process of using regenerative cotton, um, regenerative farming. So they started and they had realised the water savings that they were getting and the impact that it was having on the crop product was phenomenal. So they're doing more and more of it. And I think that, you know, we're talking about you know, how how we react when things go wrong. And I think that one of the things that I've seen is that the ch- farmers will rise to the challenge. And one of the ways in which they're doing it is at scale regenerative farming. So I think it's really important that we recognise that that is not just a small thing. It's also a big thing. It's one of the many solutions that we can deploy at scale. That was the first question. The second question was... Ooh, um, there were so many. I think hemp was another one. Ah, uh, yes. So uh, identifying, al- yes, identifying alternate um, types of crops and alternate ways to do things. I think this is really important and it's a very interesting question because what has happened in some places is that the reduction in water supplies available has actually perversely shifted, co- sh- shifted crops. So in the case of the San Joaquin Valley, because less water was available off the Sierra Nevadas, and the cost was the same. The farmers shifted away from annual crops like corn and cotton and into annual and uh, perennial crops like pistachios and almonds. The challenge with that is that if you have an annual crop, you need to make, especially if it's expensive, which almonds and pistachios and nuts, you need to be able to have a sustainable source of water 24 hours a day, seven days a week, right, for 365 days of the year. So you no longer have the luxury of being able to say, oh, we're having a bad year, we're having a drought, so I won't plant this year and therefore I won't use water. So in that case, it's had a perverse incentive, which is that because the water is no longer now available from the Sierra Nevada, because the way in which the government has regulated the water means that there's zero allocation or very small allocation to those farmers, those farmers are now reopening the drills down into the underground aquifers and they're using underground water in order to be able to continue to have those plants alive. So I think that, you know, identifying and understanding different crops, um, sharing that knowledge, figuring out how to incentivize that is really, is, is going to be important and is going to provide an important solution for farmers across the world. The third thing is, um, the third question which was asked, which was about the role of multinational corporations. I think this is also a very interesting um, question because twofold. The first is that many multinational corporations, we think of them as the big baddies, but the truth is that they're often consolidators amongst a lot of small to medium-sized enterprises. Here's an example, which is Zambia Sugar. So we went to Zambia Sugar in Zambia and talked to them at length because we knew that they're, you know, British, they're one of British Foods, a subsidiary indirectly. Um, and we talked to them about, well, you're producing sugar at scale in this, you know, very tough environment. What are you doing to save water? And they walked us through. We stayed on the farm. They walked us through their sustainability practices. They're doing a lot of work with WWF and others to increase and improve their practices. The challenge for them is that a number of the the farms that are producing the sugar that they depend on are not farms that are owned by them. They're farms that are owned by small to medium-sized farmers and their challenge is getting those farmers to go through the transition process that they have gone through is pretty challenging. Um, And so I think that understanding the role of multinationals, not just as you guys are the bad ones, but also how can we support you to help to get these others to transition 
number one. How can we support or how can we figure out ways to use the weight, the knowledge and the research capability of these major multinational corporations to figure out how to do things better, whether it's making better seeds, creating seeds that will grow differently or in different environments which have adapted to climate change or figuring out how to use create and use better pesticides and let's face it in many places the only way to grow these crops is with the use of some degree of natural or or synthetic uh, pesticide in which case you know how do we make sure that those are done in the way that's best for our environment best for our health and best for the health of the planet so i think that we need to look at look at things differently and really move from it's the them and us mentality to it's an we've all got a problem how do we all come together to solve it yeah excellent um evelyn please uh, join us our last um the last one to ask a question um can you hear me yes i can hear you okay sorry i got a a weird message about enabling microphone. Anyway, I was going to bring up hydropower, but uh, looking at the time, I just um, wanted to say thank you so much, Mina. You you inspired me to um, try and raise more awareness. I'm currently walking across Switzerland. I'll have to stop in a bit because the Alps are, you can't walk in the Alps. Um, at least I can't safely. Um, so I'm going to try and use that to raise awareness on, on the water issue, especially when I walk in southern Switzerland, the Italian speaking part where there's a, a drought or there has been a drought for years. So thank you for the inspiration. That's all. Uh, Evelyn, much, Evelyn, what you're, what you're doing is amazing. It's so good. And what an incredible part of the world to be in. There's the glaciers. Switzerland has huge challenges with access to the with the glaciers. I know that a lot of them are melting faster than anyone had expected, anticipated, uh, and that is going to cause major issues for access to water in a country that we all think of as being green and verdant. Um, and you're right about Italy too. In the mass, in the midst of a massive drought, the poor Po River is being devastated. Um, thousands of farmers are struggling to put you know, literally put um, put their crops out and put food on the table. And I think that what makes what you're doing incredibly important. So thank you very much. And every time you feel like you don't want to take another step, think of all those people that are depending on water for their survival. And I hope that they inspire you just as they have inspired me to understand that, you know, all these things that we get a little bit overwhelmed by walking, running, um, these big, bold, audacious goals. Thank you. Um, uh, thank you to those that asked questions. Uh, thank you for all that are listening now, for all that are listening later to this podcast. And uh, thank you above, uh, above all, of course, Mina Guli, uh, for taking so much time to be with us for everything that you're doing, because you do it uh, for all of us, and uh, that's uh, I'm 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 so much uh, impressed. Uh, who knows? We see each other in New York soon. Uh, stay on the line on on the Zoom call uh, because I have another question a little bit related to that. At the moment, I don't have any, but uh, stay tuned. You know how to follow me on the usual uh, channels, uh, uh, the Planet um, uh, newsletter, 
which I suppose uh, the next issue might be about Mina Guli uh, and this this podcast, uh, as well as um, uh, the um, the Water Conference uh, and uh, and there's Twitter and all the other social media uh, where I'm active. And I hope to uh, see you all back uh, whenever I do the next podcast. Uh, thank you so much. And I'm going to end this room. <laughs>